On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about budget cuts, specifically the fact that in Alberta, Jason Kenney, new premier with his first budget, is getting praised widely for making big, big, big cuts to the provincial budget. Yet here in Ontario, Doug Ford does the same thing and gets destroyed. What's the difference? Well, we'll talk about that one. We're also going to talk about Disney World. Yes, we're going to lighten things up a little bit because Disney World has announced that they are going to be redoing Epcot Center. Yeah, redoing Epcot. It may not always be the edutainment center of the world, the happiest place to learn. I don't know. Is that what Epcot is? We'll talk about it. And Max Weinberg, drummer for the E Street Band with Bruce Springsteen, drummer drummer for Conan O'Brien. He's coming to town. We're talking to him. Stick around to listen to that. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. This afternoon, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney was presenting, has been presenting his government's budget. And yesterday, in a televised address to people in Alberta, he warned Albertans this was going to be rough. This was not going to be a fun budget. Cuts were coming, deep cuts, painful cuts were coming, he warned everybody. And he followed that up today. He is following that up today. $2.8 billion in cuts this year. It's going to be many, many, many billion more than that over the next few years. Uh, Something like 2,000 public service jobs cut. That's going to be close to 10,000 by the time everything is done. And here's the amazing part about this, is that while there has certainly been some criticism, generally, if you look at social media, you look at feedback from Alberta, the response has been favorable. The economy isn't in good shape. We don't have the money to continue doing the things we're doing. We can't afford this. We're drowning in deficits and debt. So yeah, Mr. Kenny, go ahead. Chop away seems to be the consensus or at least a popular view out there. We'll live with it. Just do what you have to do. Compare that to what's going on here in Ontario. Doug Ford inherited a, an economy that was saddled with deficits and had enormous debt. He made cuts, but the response here, vastly different from what Jason Kenny is getting out in Alberta. 180 degrees different. Why? I want to bring in Matt Gurney. He is a National Post columnist. He's written about Alberta. He's written about Ontario politics. Uh, one of the guys we love to read. Matt, thanks for doing this today. Good to be here. Uh, let me throw some theories at you for this because this uh, Doug Ford somewhere has to be sitting there just like beating his head against the wall going, how come I don't get these kind of breaks that, uh, that people like it when I cut things in my province? Because they certainly don't. Um, but let me throw some some theories at you for why this is the way it is. And the first one is that if you're in Alberta and you're a conservative, you can get away with anything right about now. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. But I mean, I, I think what we're looking at here, and let's get philosophical right away, is that the chicken or is that the egg? I mean, is this because the government in Alberta is able to get away with things or and the people will go along with it? Or is it because the people put in a government that is actually prepared to make these kinds of cuts? The Alberta economy has really been taking it on the chin over and over and over in, in recent years. And we, we don't need to go through all the reasons why. I think the listeners generally understand the, uh, the impact the, oil, uh, the global oil markets have had in Alberta. But I think what we're, we're looking at here is that the Albertan people are prepared and willing to actually make some sacrifices and some big ones. I mean, you've, you've sort of run through the list briefly there. I was looking at uh, the Calgary Herald's report on it as well. The cuts are going to be annoying. They're going to definitely uh, cause some problems for some people. There's no way around that. But I think there is a degree of public buy-in in Alberta that we simply don't have here in Ontario. 
but was Doug Ford not elected, not maybe entirely, but was a big part of his platform not cuts and austerity and getting the budget back in order and getting the books back balanced, which you cannot do without making some kind of cuts. He's elected on that. And the minute then here that he starts to make a cut, people lose their minds out there. They go, yeah, that seems to be why we elected Jason Kenney. Yeah, I think Ford has two problems, one of which is self-inflicted. The other one is just kind of the way it goes, and he's going to have to try and find his way around it. The first problem that was self-inflicted, and I don't think we need to relitigate the entire first uneven year, we'll call it, of Ford's uh, premiership. I think the premier here in Ontario picked a lot of fights he didn't have to, and maybe not the smart fights. I mean, Kenny uh, has was only been in office couple for a couple of months. I mean, elected in the spring, as you said, it's his first budget, so he has decided to do the heavy lifting early, whereas Premier Ford decided to sink a lot of his early capital into declaring war on Toronto City Council, and weirdly, the parents of kids with autism. Like, he has blown a lot of his political capital early on things that probably aren't getting him a lot of returns. Something else, and I don't know if it's a Doug Ford thing in particular, I don't know if it's an Ontario PC thing, I'm not honestly sure, I have my theories, but I'll I'll put, I'll put the question to you. This government is not good in Ontario at sticking to unpopular positions. I wrote months ago, and I I don't often go back and reread my old columns. It seems a little narcissistic, but (laughs) there was one I wrote months ago where I had said something that's going to get this government in Ontario into trouble is going to be the fact that they take unpopular positions they take all the political damage of that. They get all the blowback. They get all the, the hatred and the, uh, they lose popular support. And they fight and they fight and they fight and they fight. And they lose political capital. And then all of a sudden they go, well, okay, we changed our mind. We're done. So and you've they, only got bad news and you get nothing out of it. Yeah. And by the time they retreat, instead of it being forward-looking government changes course, the narrative for guys that do the kind of work you and I do isn't, hey, look at this great leadership here. It is Ford government in retreat again. And they did it again today. I mean, they they announced that the class sizes are going to go back to where they were. So, you know, I was thanking the news gods on that one for giving us a little something fresh to sink our teeth into, but it's a perfect example. How much political capital did the Ford government here in Ontario sink into the idea that, you know, there was going to be tough times coming on the education front And then, you know, they haven't totally backed off of that, but they've done at least a partial reversal today. And the effect of this, and this this isn't even talking politics at this point, Scott, we're just talking human nature. If you are an opponent of Doug Ford, you know, at the activist level, right on up to actually a sitting member in the legislature of one of the opposition parties, you've learned. Just fight. Yeah. Just fight. Again, fill the visitor galleries at Queen's Park with angry protesters and you know, have protests outside MPP's offices. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Matt Gurney of the National Post about the Doug Ford government versus the Jason Kenney government, the Albertan government bringing down its budget today, its first budget. Big, big, big cuts, thousands of public service jobs being hacked away uh, because they say our economy is in a mess and they are getting generally lauded for this, whereas here in Ontario, every single cut seems to be positioned as people will die. Uh, Very different worldviews, very different responses. And just before the break, Matt, you were saying a big part of this is that you've got one government that has said it's going to do something and then seems to back off every single time there's blowback. 
Yes, and you know, as, as we were talking about just before we hit that break, there, the Ford government. The problem is, you know, one of my little rules of life, and I swear to God, I mean, I have this written down in my little book of like madisms, is that the <laughs> other guy has a plan too. Every time you're in a confrontation, you've got your angle figured out. The other guy has a plan too, and Ford's opponents here in this province, and you know, what, I, like I said before the break, whether it's in opposition or if it's activists or community organizers. They know that if you dig in, if you fight, if you make a lot of noise and you really get a lot of attention, the Ford government has a pretty good chance of backing down. If Jason Kenney shows up and says he's going to bulldoze your entire neighborhood because the prosperity of Alberta depends on it, the bulldozers are going to bulldoze your neighborhood the next day. Kenney still has in Alberta right now the authority, but also, more importantly, he has the respect of authority. What, what people believe him when he says he's going to do something, which probably helps him sometimes avoid having to do things. Because now you will negotiate with him knowing there is an end to this that may not mm-hmm. you may not like. Yeah, no, exactly right. I mean, politics, as much as anything else in life, is, is a degree of human psychology, and there's also just like deterrence in this, right? Rob, uh, Barbie, Doug Ford right now does not have the kind of deterrence he would need. I, I'm curious to see what happens. I mean, I, I, he's been basically in like stasis for the last four months, and he only really emerged over the last 24 hours or so. So maybe he'll be able to regroup a bit and move forward. I mean, I would hope the time off for the uh, government over the summer has been put to some good use. But I, as you've already noted, I mean, right out of the gate, the government sort of emerges from hiding after the federal election campaign. And one of their first decisions, and we can talk about whether or not it's a good decision, like we can debate it on its merits, but one of the first things they do is yet again back off a position that they had previously taken, and I guess they were taking too much heat on. It's it's fascinating because, and you've, I mean, it's great what you've explained because I hadn't considered this, but it's absolutely right uh, about the, if you don't have the credibility because you haven't held your ground, nobody believes you anymore, and therefore we know we can just keep fighting and not accept the realities that this is going to happen. I mean, Jason Kenney says that over the next four years, he will be cutting roughly 10% of the civil service there because they can't afford it. Nobody in Ontario would dare to try that, would they? Well, I mean, I would say right now they wouldn't. I mean, it's getting a little bit into the realm of alternate history, but imagine if instead of having his first budget, as we saw in Ontario, you know, Doug Ford's first budget actually increased provincial spending, Imagine if it had been a true austerity budget, if the government had come out and said, look, we, we made our promises and we're going to do our best to keep them, but the fiscal situation's a bit worse than we expected. You know, they kind of tried that, and the Auditor General wrapped their knuckles a bit. But you know the, the play, right? The left guy, uh, the last guy left us in a worse situation than uh, we appreciated, and we've got to swing the axe to get out of it here. If you're going to do that, you do that on your first budget. You don't spend a year blowing your political capital on a series of lost battles and then try to do it in your third or fourth. The other thing that I do wonder if Jason Kenney has a secret advantage over any other premier right now is that he does have the supervillain that he can blame most things on, which is Justin Trudeau. It doesn't matter what he does, you can always blame Trudeau. Yeah, I mean, I tend to think the the issues that Kenney's going to need to get nasty on are probably ones that fall outside of the exact dynamic of the Trudeau relationship. But you can always blame the bigger picture of what the federal government has done to us. That's exactly right. I mean, a good excuse forgives a multitude of sins. And right now, 
you know, whether or not it's opportunistic or even whether or not it is absolutely sincere, right? Because Alberta's economy really has taken a beating. Kenny has the political cover right now afforded by a crisis. And what have we heard again and again? That in crisis lies political opportunity. Yeah, and, and wasn't it Bill Clinton who always said, never let a good crisis go to waste? Exactly right. So, and, and he, yeah, so he's got the opportunity to do this now that he might not in five years. Yeah, and the thing is, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I haven't looked in detail at the proposed budget yet, so like, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on this. But something that surprises a lot of Canadians when they find this out is that Ontario actually per capita spends not very much. Like our program spending divided by each citizen is relatively low. In Alberta, it's relatively high. So a lot of people have made the point, and it's a, it's a fair one, that taxes in Alberta are low. If they want to close the deficit, well, they can raise taxes. Alberta has no provincial sales tax. They could come out with one of those. And those are fair points, but the, uh, the other people are taking more the, the Kenny line on this, kind of the, uh, the, the true blue conservative believers in Alberta, are also right to note, as I saw one of them say today, if Alberta spent as much per capita as British Columbia did, we'd already be back in balance. Alberta's problem, and it's eternal, right, this is before you and I were born, is that the price of oil goes up, the provincial spending goes up with it, and the price of oil comes down, and Alberta finds itself screwed. So if they're caught in one of those cycles right now, spending went up and up and up and up, oil revenues came down, and now they have a choice. They're going to raise taxes or they're going to cut spending. Well, you know what? Alberta's going to Alberta. They've gone to cutting spending route. Matt Gurney from the National Post. Always appreciate having you on here, Matt. Thanks for doing it tonight. Good to be here. Take care. Uh, It is a fascinating comparison. How Doug Ford trying to make cuts and the response to that compares with Jason Kenney making cuts and the response he's getting. As I said off the top, Doug Ford could only dream of getting the kind of response to cuts that Kenney is getting. Lavish praise for the most part in Alberta. Uh, Hatred here. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, weather is starting to turn a little bit. Things are getting a little cooler. We're eventually going to be hitting winter. And you know what happens when people start to think about winter? They start to think about going somewhere not winter. They start to think about, oh, let's go to the islands. Let's go to Florida. Let's do something like that. Well, that's where this next story came in. Because I came across this thing online the other day. It was a story from, I don't even know what paper it was. That Disney World, the folks behind Walt Disney Company, Walt Disney Corporation, are about to spend who knows how much, I mean billions, to completely redo, do over Epcot, one of the four parks down at Walt Walt Disney World in Orlando. Huge money is going to be spent to completely overhaul Epcot. If you've been there, and many people have, uh, you can visualize what it's like now. A couple of years from now, apparently it's going to look way, way, way different. Well, I said, okay, we're going to be talking about Epcot. We're going to be talking about Disney. Uh, I have a friend named Lena Almeida. She was, uh, she's a travel blogger. She's a travel writer. She was just down at Disney World less than a month ago. So I said, you know what? Time to get Lena on here. So here she is. Lena, how are you today? I'm great. How are you, Scott? I'm great. Although I must say, I just saw your blog that you were just in Jamaica. So I'm I'm not really liking you right now because that's, (laughs) you know, just not really all that nice to tell people you were enjoying the sun. But anyway, you were also down at Disney World the other day, not that long ago, a month or so ago. Yeah, we actually, it was was an adult only vacation to 
really enjoy the new Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. We figured that the kids may cramp our style a bit while we got our geek on, and it, it was really, really amazing. I want to get to, Gal- to that new Star Wars thing, because it actually looks kind of cool, but I want to get to that in a minute. But let's go to Epcot first, because that is the real adult thing. At least that was sort of the plan when they built it in uh, 1981, 82, something like that. I mean, it's been kind of, Epcot has been Epcot now almost since it was built, right? It really hasn't changed all that much. That's right, yeah. It's it's definitely held on to most of the nostalgic, we'll call it, you know, sentimental value over the years. And I think that, especially for adults, that's probably still one of the best draws and attractions to be able to kind of relive some of those memories that we had going to Epcot as a child. Well, and, and one of the things that I hear often when people talk about Disney is that Epcot is that park that you either really love it or not as much. I mean, it's 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 the educational park. <laughs> and I don't yeah, know when fair. people go if they're thinking, <laughs> oh, I want to be educated or if I just want to have more rides. You know what? That's fair. I normally travel with my kids to Walt Disney World and I love Epcot. Uh, not just for the educational part, but for the food and drink. And I think that that's where in the past few years, they've really established, um, you know, they are the park for foodies. They have two different festivals that the, they have the wine and food festival and the flower and garden festival, both which have a stress on, you know, food, drink, beverages from around the world. And I think that for adults, especially foodies, that's it's, there's definitely a real draw. But it is a large park, and it is, um, you know, it's designed in in a large kind of circle or oval. And and for the little kids who don't get that instant satisfaction for ride after ride, there can definitely be a little bit of okay, but that, that's great. Where, where's when are we going on our next ride? And I think most people, and you mentioned the food, I mean, I think most people, when they think of Epcot, they think of the country part of it rather than the rides that are there. You're going to walk around. The one good thing that I saw, well, there there may be more than one good thing. One good thing I saw is that the Canadian Pavilion is getting a complete makeover with a whole new movie, which I think is about time because the movie that's in there, while it goes all around you and it's kind of cool, I think it was filmed in about 1972. It's time for an update. Definitely. You know, it's really funny because as a Canadian who goes down to Epcot and experiences, you know, the the World Pavilion, I will say this. I think that we are very fortunate to be, you know, we're in a very multicultural society. And the learnings that one would have, maybe if you're coming from not such a, you know, diverse society in Epcot is great. But for us, it's kind of like, well, you know, when we go down to Toronto, we're seeing this. Well, and, and as I say, the, the movie is old enough that I think if you were not familiar with Canada or the States, let's say you came from somewhere else in the world and watched the Canada Pavilion movie, you might think that we were Cuba, driving cars from the 1940s. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's again, it's it's lovely. They play O Canada and it's a 360 degree movie and it's all very cool. But it's like, I, I, I'm not really sure that Pierre Trudeau is still our prime minister. We have a Trudeau, but it's the wrong one. I'm hoping that the recent, you know, I I guess we could say we've been on the world stage a few times now, especially over the last few years. I think that may, I'm hoping that's one of the reasons why, you know, we we kind of earned that refresh. Yeah, just as long as they don't involve Drake in the movie, we're all good. (laughs) Uh, Now, here's the other thing, though. If they were to redo... Epcot in a big way. And I don't know what the plan is for how they're going to do it, whether it's going to be a massive building project all at once or place by place. But there are four Disney parks. And one of the things that you're able to do is there's a million people. There's like tons of people who go. They spread them out into the four parks. If they turn Epcot into a giant 
construction zone, is that not going to make all the other three parks almost impenetrable? Well, if there's one thing I've learned about visiting Disney over the years, um, I've whenever there's new construction, whether it be for a new ride or even you know a new land, they've always they really have a down pat that even as a guest in the actual park, you don't feel that the instruction has intruded on your experience in any way. So I do believe they probably have multiple plans for Epcot over the next several years, but I don't see there being a complete overhaul where the guest experience would be interrupted in any way. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Aline Almeida, who is a travel blogger, just back a little while ago from Disney World. We're talking about Disney because everyone, it's getting to be wintertime. It's all closing in on winter and people are thinking about traveling and there's all kinds of stuff going on here. Uh, Lena, thanks for sticking with us here. You you mentioned off the top that you were down uh, for this new Star Wars thing because they've poured like hundreds, I don't know, is it hundreds of millions? I don't know, tens of millions into building this new area that's all for the Star Wars folks. I was going to say the Star Wars nerds or geeks, but I won't do that because <laughs> that would be insulting. Um, what is this? So you know what, Scott, you actually, you had it right though because I would say that Star Wars Galaxy's Edge isn't just for the Star Wars folks. It's It's actually for the Star Wars fanatics. So they didn't kind of, you know, there are no half measures here. The the land is completely immersive. If you are a fan of Star Wars, you will love it. But even I thought I was a fan and, you know, we went down there and I realized I probably missed, you know, 50% of the symbolism that they put in there for the true fanatics. So what I have to say is, you know, my hat's off to Disney because they, they went all in and they made this immersive land where truly, when you cross, you know, you're, you're walking in Disney's Hollywood Studios, and then you just kind of like walk through, you take a little bit of a turn, and then you're no longer on Earth. You know, you're in Batu. <laughs> uh, which you're right now speaking a foreign language to me, because I'm not a Star Wars guy, so I'm thinking I'm going to be that one who's walking around going, and okay. That's, uh, so, I mean, you know, I might make it something out of it. It'll look cool. I know they have a giant Millennium Falcon and a few other things there. The big concern that a lot of people had, Delina, is that this was, and I, I was reading this a few places, that this was going to be so epic, so big, that the lines were going to never end here. They were going to have such long lines that nobody would ever see anything because, again, all the Star Wars people were going to come. Is that Was that your experience? 100% no. <laughs> I'm happy to report. So we actually went September 10th to the 12th. So, I mean, it opened on August 29th, I believe. I may be um, incorrect on that date, but let's just say we went two weeks after it opened. And I was stressed out. I really, really thought, you know, I went in there thinking that we were going to be in that very long lineup. But see, Disney, they, they have something now until November 2nd called Extra Extra Magic Hours. So, so if you're staying at a, at a Walt Disney World Resort Hotel or one of their partner hotels, you can actually enter the park at 6 a.m. And we did that. We, we, we absolutely were on the boat to Hollywood Studios at 5.30 a.m. We got there at 6. And then we were able to go straight to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge and enjoy the park before it opened to the public at 9 o'clock. And I will tell you this, we actually rode the Millennium Falcon twice because the lineup was less than 20 minutes each time. Now, after extra, extra magic hours, so post-November 2nd, I can't speak to how, you know, how 
busy it will be, but I will say if you're listening right now and you want to experience it, it's a fabulous time to get on a plane and go. When you said that you and your husband without kids went to Disney at six o'clock in the morning, I, I have to play this clip. I could, it's from Jim Gaffigan because uh, I've done the same thing. So we're going to both be affected by this, but just take a listen to this clip by Jim okay. Gaffigan. Here we go. You know, now there are adults without children that go to Disney and they're called weirdos. <laughs> Yes, we, we've all done it. Um, it is, uh, but the, the other thought was that this is going to clean out many of the spots in the other parks because there's going to be so many people waiting in lines. This is going to be terrific because now you go to Disney World and all, you don't have to wait anywhere else because everybody's at the Star Wars World. Yeah, I think, again, Star Wars, like you said, if it's a huge draw if you are a fanatic, if you are a fan, or if you're just curious and want to see, you know, the new land. I had just as much appreciation and awe for Toy Story Land. Um, and, you know, my, my kids are fans of Toy Story, but I'm certainly not, you know, I, I'm not obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that it's a good balance because, yes, you have a lot of Star Wars fans who want to check it out, but with the combination of the extra, extra magic hours and just really balancing the fact that maybe some people will say, you know what, I'm not so, you know, um, it's not something I have to do on this trip. Maybe we'll do it next time. I really didn't feel that it was overly congested in any way. And again, I'm I'm speaking as someone who was there probably at 7.15 in the morning by the time we, you know, got in, checked out a few different things. It, It was very, it was well done. I'll put it that way. The crowd control measures that Disney has put in place at the moment are are very good. You can read more about this. Uh, Lena's uh, website, listen to Lena, just like it sounds, listen to Lena.com. You can go there. Uh, Lena, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, the You know what? This is, we've all been to Disney, right? Most of us, most of us have been to Disney. Some of you will be going again. Uh, you know, the idea of a new Epcot, I think people are maybe ready for that one. The idea of Star Wars land, if you're a Star Wars-y person, yes. For me, I think I'm going to be hoping if I ever go that, you know what, that takes some lines away from other places, (laughs) but we'll see. Uh, Anyway, lots of people probably thinking about Disney though coming up because it is getting to be winter. It's either Disney or the islands or just crank up the heat in your house, one or the other. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. My next guest tonight is one of the most accomplished rock drummers of all time, not to mention one of the most famous because of all the things he's done. Uh, he is the longtime drummer for Bruce, Springsteen, Bruce Springsteen's East Street Band. He is the longtime band leader for Conan O'Brien. He has worked with more artists than I could list without taking up all the time in this segment. And this Sunday night, he's in Burlington at the Burlington Performing Arts Center where he is bringing his Max Weinberg's jukebox to town. I am very pleased to be joined right now by Max Weinberg. Max, how are you tonight? Scott, I'm well. I'm fantastic and looking forward to playing in your neck of the woods. Well, and, you know, we have a particular affinity and a particular love for drummers up here, seeing as this is the place where Neil Peart was born. So, you know, we we like to produce our drummers around here. Well, and then Neil Peart, one of the greatest you know, just an incredible drummer. And actually, Neil Peart, when you ask people, young drummers, who's their favorite drummer, they say Neil Peart. And uh, so I'm delighted to be uh, playing in the area that bred uh, Neil Peart. 
Well, I want you to explain what you're doing with the Max Weinberg Jukebox Tour, because I will say this, this, uh, it sounds incredibly cool and incredibly fun to me. And I watched a bunch of videos online today to see how it would go. Uh, and I want you to explain it, but this sounds like it would be something entirely terrifying for many musicians to have no set, just to let her rip on the stage. <laughs> well, that's what it is. It's a, not a concert. It's a party where the audience picks all the songs. We have a video scroll of about 300 songs, the songs that I grew up with, the songs that I learned how to play drums from, the songs that uh, just were personal favorites of mine, and as it turns out, really kind of the soundtrack of that mid-century, 20th century music from the 50s to the 70s, a couple of 80s songs thrown in there. The band is uh, very adept at, well, if you have a song like, for example, Tommy Two-Tone, uh, eight six seven five three zero nine. Yeah, one guy knows. Yeah, if one guy knows it, we'll play it. And if you know, that's the Jersey way of coming up in music was to be able to play everything that people threw at you, and it was one of the fun things and the challenging thing. And I kind of turned it into a show where you pick the set list and you get to hear your favorite songs. And the thing with this material. God is that we respect it so we play it with conviction and uh, admiration for the great songs they were you know back in the 60s when I was coming of age you had the top 40 which was incredibly esoteric you would have the Beatles next to the Stones next to Dylan Aretha all the great soul acts the great Motown acts the West Coast sound you'd had so many different types of songs in the top 40 and that's how i grew up it wasn't just specializing in sort of one kind of music it was uh, generalizing uh, what you were listening to and i integrated it into my drumming it's how i learned how to play drums and uh, we're having a lot of fun with this we've done about 200 shows over the last huh. 22 months or so and it's different <laughs> it's a very different experience i think for the audience and uh, the Canadian audiences have been fantastic for us. We played in Oakville. We played in Markham last night. So we're making our way through uh, Ontario. And, uh, you know, I've got deep roots uh, in that area, having played uh, for the first time. first time I was in Canada was with Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band in 1974 at a place in Toronto called Massey Hall. Yeah, still there. It is, yeah. And at the time, it was one of the fanciest places we ever played also had the privilege of playing twice two times at maple leaf gardens and uh for us that was very exciting because yeah, maple leaf gardens is like madison square garden an iconic venue i was gonna ask you if you were comfortable with that level of spontaneity obviously you are and you know, i got thinking about it because when David Bowie died, you guys were on tour, I think, with Bruce Springsteen, and I think that night you guys did a tribute to him, and I think you did the same thing with Prince. I, you've yeah. got to be obviously able to to do almost anything, but I also got wondering, like, your rehearsals with that band must have been unbelievable, where someone just says, we're doing this, and you better be ready to go with it. The E Street Band you're referring yes, to? Yes, yes. Yeah, well, that's somebody is Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> that's why they call him the boss. And that's, that's the job, is to be uh, able to sort of play anything at a, a drop of a hat. But the interesting thing about Bruce and the E Street Band is now we're in our, you know, 
I'm 68, he's 70. We have extremely common musical roots. So it's a shorthand. And I think bands uh, that, that last have that kind of shorthand. I can tell you it's an incredible privilege to be able to still be playing that music after all these years because, you know, you might, if, if you get some kind of uh, success, you might have 10, 12 years maybe. Uh, this is my 45th year that I've been associated with Bruce, and to be able to dig down into that material is really a, a joy, actually. Um, but the common musical roots, where we came up playing the clubs in Jersey, and, and when you did that, you 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 know you were playing from nine to three in the morning, sometimes six hmm. nights a week. So if you didn't know a song, you had to be able to fake a song pretty well, and we got good at that. That's <laughs> the Jersey way. And it's just our kind of common musical roots and the fact that we started as a bar band, which was a, 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 it wasn't a pejorative. It was something we were very proud of because you had to work to really win the audience over. And I still embrace that philosophy when I play. Well, and if people don't know just how good you guys are at being able, you say to fake it, but I, I was watching, and I mean, you were there, you'll remember this one, but the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame 25th anniversary concert where they had everybody was involved, and you guys were kind of the the backing band for almost everybody, and they would come on, and you guys, it sounded like you had been playing that music forever. Well, in in a, in a way, we had been playing it forever. We played with Sam and Dave, uh, Sam rather, uh, excuse me, and, you know, we had been playing this, his songs, him and Dave Prater's songs for years on our own. So it was very natural to do that. And, uh, you know, we came out of the show band experience, which was soul reviews and uh, like the Motown review. Uh, so it was more than just sort of playing and jamming. It was really playing music with a purpose in a show. And that's kind of a lost art these days. Uh, it doesn't seem to be that. I mean, there are certainly great shows out there, but the show band thing was very specific to the sort of 50s and 60s, and that was the era in which we grew up. Uh, so playing with Sam Moore and Darlene Love uh, and even Billy Joel, we backed up uh, mm -hmm. uh, Billy Joel on a number of tunes. Uh, you know, that's sort of the job is you learn the music. And in my case... Uh, through my TV experience, I was able to, to really get good at, at, at writing charts and uh, so shorthand and drumming, so you don't have to remember everything, you can just read it off. And uh, that was a skill you need in TV. You need to be able to, uh, particularly in those days, which turned out to be sort of the end of the golden age of late night TV, uh, you needed to be able to uh, play a huge amount of music and the idea of memorizing it all was very difficult so you wrote it out it was all charted and it's a skill that i didn't have when i was younger but i developed it as i got older and it really has served me well to be able to do that you know what and I'll, before we move on from the, just before we move on from that you mentioned sam moore i've probably watched that hold on and soul man clip from that concert like 200 times on youtube it's one of the great performances that just it's such a good feeling big band not big band like swing but i mean big band sound and everything it's just fantastic five horns yeah no it was fantastic it was thrill uh you know it was a thrill and i have to tell you i was sort of like tickled and <laughs> we all were to uh you know whenever you get to play with your heroes uh you know playing with sam 
uh, was just an amazing experience because, you know, uh, he was just, I saw, given a great award. Uh, and uh, while he's sitting down, he still has the pipes. So to play with the guy who created all that music yeah. that was a tremendous thrill. There's a clip of us playing behind Chuck Berry at the uh, groundbreaking of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think it was 1995. That is on, uh, uh, you can see it on YouTube, I guess. And uh, I just remember, like, this is unbelievable. There were like 80,000 people there. We're playing with Chuck Berry, and he was very, very serious about it. And, you know, really played his stuff. And uh, it just felt so great. It was the only time that the Holy Street Band in that form played with Chuck. I played with Chuck Berry a number of times, and Little Richard as well. But, you know, if you were a fan of that music in the 60s, to have all those people from James Brown, Little Richard, Chuck Berry on the stage at the same time, Booker T and the MGs, uh, it, was, it was an amazing experience. And whenever we've played backing people like that, uh, you're thinking you sort of have to pinch yourself, you know, that you're playing with your your hero. Um, it's a wonderful aspect of actually being in the East Band. Uh, we had the great experience of playing with Paul McCartney in London one night. He came and played with us, and I have to tell you, I was sitting on a drum stand about ten feet behind him, and his, as he's singing, I saw her standing there. And so that moment, I was Ringo Starr. <laughs> Show. That would be. I was living every fantasy you ever had. I believe it. I believe that would be that would be goosebump time to be back there playing that th- that w- at that moment. And I understand now. Tell me if I if I'm wrong, but I understand that once upon a time you ended up at Ringo Starr's house. Uh, is that right? In his studio. Uh, uh, yes, uh, actually, several times. Uh, you know, he was. Uh, 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 I met him uh, through a friend of mine, Jim Keltner, who's a great session drummer. Played with Bob Dylan and uh, Delaney and Bob, a lot of people. You know, Jim's one of the greatest, and he introduced me to Ringo, and we became friends. And of course, it's hard to become friends with your hero because he's still your hero. And uh, uh, so I've had wonderful uh, moments with uh, with Ringo and his lovely wife Barbara. And uh, you know, you'd never, even though you get sort of friendly, you never forget that. Wow, he was in the Beatles. <laughs> you know, that, that never. That never leaves you, I think. And that was the experience we had, you know, Paul playing with our band was like, you know, all of us, Bruce, everybody was, wow, we just played with Paul McCartney. It was incredible. So I think if you keep that fandom in your soul as a musician, you can't go wrong. And that's what I try to do in this jukebox show is I'm a fan of this music. And I'm very interested in why people pick a particular song. I go out in the audience. I will also tell stories uh, about how I connect to this music mm-hmm. and how it affected me. And, uh, someone last night asked for a Dave Clark Five song, and uh, we played that. And I can remember seeing the Dave Clark Five. I know the date, May 2nd, 1964, in Newark, New Jersey. And it was one of the most exciting things I've ever seen. So I, I kind of bring that fandom to the show that we're putting on right now. Just one more thing about the fandom thing with Ringo Starr. The story that I remember hearing, or I thought I heard, was at one point, did he not take you into a studio and his drums, the original drums from the Ed Sullivan show, were there? Uh, it wasn't the Ed Sullivan. Or the original tour. Yeah, when I in- 
Well, when I interviewed him for uh, my book, The Big Beat, it was at his house outside of London, about 45 minutes from London. This is back in the uh, uh, the 80s. I think it was 81. And he had a, uh, there was a rehearsal studio. Actually, he bought this house from John Lennon. Uh, it's in the Imagine video, the house. And Ringo ended up uh, uh, owning it. And he had a bunch of the Beatles equipment. The set I played was the, the blonde maple set that he used in the Let It Let It Be uh, huh. film, um, which he used later in the Beatles' career, and it was exactly the same as it was. The fun thing was we, he had all these drum cases, and it said Ringo Starr, the Beatles, in sort of a stenciled white script. And we opened the cases, and I, I'm not so sure. I don't think it was the Ed Sullivan's drum set. But it was one of the drum sets, and there we are unpacking his drums in his uh, studio that was sort of adjacent to his house. And again, I had to pinch myself. That I <laughs> no kidding. This. No what kidding. What was interesting about the blonde drum set was it was the one he used in the movie uh, and on the rooftop concert, that drum set. But the in the bass drum, the kick drum they call it, usually you put some sort of blanket in there to muffle the sound. There was a very famous picture taken of the Beatles, uh, probably 64 or 65, where they had a four-necked sweater that had a J, P, G, and R on it. And he got that sweater, and that was the bass drum muffler, <laughs> we call it. And that was in there. And he, he brought it out, and he showed me it, and I remembered the picture. So, like I said, you never lose that that sort of fanboy thing. I think. Yeah, yes, uh, for All sure. My friends who are my age have that, Scott. Uh, we only have a couple minutes left here, but the fact that you're still doing this, I mean, you've played in front of, I, I don't know what the biggest crowd, do you know what the biggest crowd is you ever played in front of? Well, I think at uh, Hyde Park in 2012, when Paul McCartney played with us, uh, it was a couple, two, about 200,000. But I think there was a, uh, uh, we played in East Germany in 19... 19- 87, and there was, I think, more than 200,000 wow. people there. So, um, but when I'm playing, I'm playing for an audience of one. I'm playing for Bruce Springsteen. So, uh, he's my audience. He does the show, and I'm just keying into what he's doing. So, it's kind of like playing sports. You know, once you, once you start, you sort of get so focused that you're not that aware of the size of the crowd. Uh, from my point of view, you know, I'm sure... Uh, if you're the front man, like even when I'm fronting my jukebox uh, show, I'm the guy in front. So you are aware, you're much more aware of the crowd than if you're in a support position. Is it easy to make that switch though to to be to play for masses of people and then to come to Burlington and play in a much more intimate venue? Is that an easy transition? Is it exactly the same? Uh, yeah, for me it is. <laughs> Actually, uh, well, I've been doing it a long time, so you don't make a differentiation. Uh, in my view, uh, whether you're playing in a small, intimate place or a big stadium, it's, it's all the same. You're there to do, you know, uh, 110% and give the people more than their money's worth. So you're doing the show, and if you're doing the show uh, and living up to your own expectations, generally the audience will be pleased, and they'll they'll have a great time. So... There really isn't any difference. In fact, with the E Street Band, if we're playing in a small room rehearsing, 
it's the same intensity as if we're in a big stadium. There's no difference, uh, uh, which is quite a quite a unique uh, experience to tell you the truth. It's, uh, it's something we've developed over the last 45 years. You know, when you're young and you're in twenties and you, you're playing these big places, um, sometimes the size of the place can be intimidating. But eventually, you just get very used to it. In fact, if you were dropped onto our stage, Bruce and the E Street Band. The first thing you'd notice was how, after you noticed how loud it was, you would notice how relaxed it is. Very, very relaxed. And you hope you last long enough and stay together long enough to be able to grow into that kind of relaxation. And, you know, thankfully, uh, Bruce and Eastry Dan have. Might people, if they come, uh, might there be a Bruce song or two that pop up in the set? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we have. Yeah, uh, a smattering of Bruce and, you know, everything from the Beatles to the Stones to Neil Diamond to uh, all the English invasion groups like the Hollies, the Yardbirds, the Kinks, we do Steppenwolf, uh, uh, Cream, you name it. It's a very eclectic list. It's like the top 40 from the 60s, but, you know, we do a half dozen Bruce songs and they're fun for me and I think they're fun for people because I mean, I'm the guy that played on the record, so you're seeing, sure. you know, if, if nothing else, you're seeing the dr- and hearing the drum part. Max, just before I let you go, one, one last question. Um, you have talked for a few minutes here about playing with your hero, meeting your hero and, and with Ringo and others. What's it like being that guy now for other people? Because you know there are people who have come up watching Bruce Springsteen, and you're that guy. That, that's got to be unusual for you or different to be that person now that you looked up to someone. You know, I get it, and and I'm thrilled and delighted that if people feel that way, or you know, young drummers or uh, people, because I do meet obviously in these small shows, I meet a lot of people every night. And I'm there, and I walk out into the audience and ask for their songs. And, uh, the music has meant a lot to them over the last 45 years, so um, I'm I'm absolutely thrilled with that. You know that that you make that kind of impact, and uh, you know for me to have been part of something that uh, people enjoy, but it was also, they were also moved by it. I mean, that's a real, uh, that's a blessing. So uh, I love it and I get it. And, and uh, uh, so I never, ever take that for granted. I, I appreciate everybody who comes, every single person who comes to see me play and, and tell my stories and, and try to give them, you know, two hours of, of getting away from their lives for a minute. Well, and it's, and, a, it's a wonderful thing. And we appreciate so much you taking time today. Uh, Max Weinberg's Jukebox will be at the Burlington Performing Arts Center Sunday evening. Uh, BurlingtonPAC.ca, Performing Arts Center. BurlingtonPerformingArtsCenter.ca. Max, thanks so much for taking the time today. Sincerely appreciate it. Well, thank you, Scott. It's my pleasure. And I hope to see all you down there on uh, uh, this weekend. Have a great night. Thanks so much. That is Max Weinberg from Bruce Springsteen's East Street Band from the Conan O'Brien Show. Um, as I say, Burlington this Sunday night if you want to go see him. Uh, tickets are not very expensive either, which I was uh, a little surprised by, but they're uh, burlingtonpac.ca if you want to go check those out. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.